guys, we're in the middle of the pandemic and these are trying times. It's hard on our mental health, our mental state. And this is why I love our sponsor today, BetterHelp. They're the largest online counseling platform worldwide. They change the way people get help with facing life's challenges by providing convenient, discreet, affordable access to licensed therapists. BetterHelp makes professional counseling available anytime, anywhere, through a computer, tablet, or smartphone. It's brilliant. Sign up today. Go to betterhelp.com backslash solving healthcare and get 10% off sign-up fees. Quadcast Nation, you guys asked for it, and we came with it. We came with it. You guys asked, you were like, yo, we need the boys back to talk about all this vaccine business and lo and behold we got dr isaac bogash and we got dr sumar chakrabarty in the mix and you know what it's been this kind of day that it's just go, it's coming straight out of the bottle today what do you got what do you got, what do you got there <laughs> i don't know it's like some uh I'm sure it was eight dollars somewhere, but it's California. Ooh, vino, uh, la di da. Look at yeah. this guy. Yeah, I'm, I'm bougie like that. I'm bag. bougie like that. So, couple, couple housekeeping things. I need people. some great poupon. Do you have any? Just, just... <laughs> oh my god. Yeah. Uh, okay. So, couple of housekeeping things. Um, it, if you want. Any links to the podcast, just type in NL and you'll get a copy of our newsletter. Most up-to-date podcasts, our upcoming podcasts, just all the info you need to do to stay on point. Next, I got to give an individual shout out to Florence Rossiter, who I I just found out uh, via my kids hockey team is our biggest fan, biggest fan. So just wanted to give a shout out to... Uh, Florence and your kids are amazing hockey. Your grandkids are amazing hockey players. Okay, what else do we got to touch on? Oh, solving healthcare. We got our latest shop. You already see the merch Ugh, like this. Let me get one of those. Our uh, conferences, our uh, low carb, and our um, uh, stress management up, ready to go. And so check that out at solving healthcare backslash shop. Okay. Now it's time to dance, okay? There's a couple things that we are here to do to talk about, gentlemen. And I got to get this one out uh, out of the way. I, was, I said we won't talk about this for more than eight minutes. But Ontario is, is proposing, or I don't know if it's official yet, but there's tons of media sources saying that we are potentially moving into a, uh, another lockdown uh, throughout the province, not regionalized, but throughout the province. I'm going to start with Sumar Chakrabarty. Any thoughts towards this uh, potential announcement, my friend? Yeah, so this is the thing, and Isaac's heard me say this a million times, that what I've kind of likened these lockdowns to, I think, obviously, there's a, a place for them. I think that uh, especially when you're getting to the point where the cases are um, really, really starting to increase, you can't keep them under control with uh, uh, your, your uh, contact tracing on the ground. That's what you have to resort to. But putting further lockdowns, especially in places like Sarnia, you know, places that are really far away from all of this, it seems like trying to squeeze that last drop out of an already squeezed lemon. I'm not really sure what this is going to do. The other thing that I have uh, serious concerns about is that a lot of what the, the problem is, is not a barbershop. It's not a restaurant or a bar that's still open. The problem is household transmission, which is something you can't really enforce. You can't have police in the streets unless you're having a big party. You can't enforce, or you can break up one party of 200 people, but you can't break up 10,000 groups of five or six that are getting together 
uh, and spreading the virus. It's a respiratory virus. You just can't do that. And the second thing is that in my area, specifically in Peel, we, we've heard a lot about this, but Peel is a place where you have a lot of kind of structural inequities. So you have people who are working in these essential jobs. The lockdown doesn't shut them down. Food processing plants, Amazon warehouse, um, all these places. You catch it there, and then many of these people have uh, people live in houses that are uh, large. They're like you know eight, nine, ten. I've heard of some houses with twenty people in them. So it gets amplified there, right? And then it's it's a bit of a of a conveyor belt. And I think that the lockdown doesn't address this, and that is part of what we're seeing uh, in in our area and, and across Canada. So I think that yeah, on, on on one hand, maybe maybe there is a raging fire that we're going to put out with the lockdown happening in. Hamilton are happening in Waterloo region. But I think that the biggest problem, what we're seeing the cases is not in that area. Isaac, thoughts? Lockdowns stink, right? We know what the negative repercussions are. We know they're terrible for mental health. We know they're terrible for people's livelihoods. We know they're bad for health in general. But currently in Ontario, we have greater than 2,000 new cases per day sustained over time. The healthcare system can't digest that many new cases per day. It can't. And the healthcare system is getting stretched beyond capacity in many parts of the province, including in and around the greater Toronto area. What that means is that there is less care being provided. People that have non-COVID-19 related issues are getting less care. Surgeries are being canceled. Sometimes they're called elective surgeries. There's nothing elective about them. They're scheduled surgeries. These are people's cancer surgeries, heart surgeries, knee surgeries, you name it. They're being canceled because of the influx of COVID-19 cases and the need to care for, care, uh, for those infected with COVID-19. So the healthcare system, it's not about to be stretched beyond capacity. It is being stretched beyond capacity. When you get to a level like that, you don't have many options. Now, we could we've talked for days and weeks and months about how you can prevent this, steps you can take to keep cases low, blah, 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 blah. We're past that. Once you get to this degree of community transmission, you have fewer and fewer and fewer options to keep this under control. But what you can't have is a scenario like New York, Houston, Northern Italy, Wuhan, where your healthcare system completely crumbles. And not only do you get a significant number of deaths related to COVID-19, but you also get a significant number of deaths and disability related to non-COVID-19 related health issues because your healthcare system is not functioning. As much as I hate lockdowns, and I really don't like lockdowns much like anyone else for the reasons I've mentioned, unfortunately, I think that's the last card you can play and they've got to play that card. And it stinks, but they've got to play that card. Um, here's the other thing. While this is happening, you've got to deal with what exactly what Suman mentioned, the underlying drivers of infection in your community, right? If you don't deal with the upstream issues that are causing your cases, once you release this lockdown, you're going to just have another cycle of lockdown after lockdown after lockdown until vaccines have rolled out wide scale and you've actually been able to prevent this. So do the heavy lifting, deal with the upstream effects, which was exactly what Suman pointed out. These are harder questions to address because a lot of this these are tougher questions. This is related to like a lot of the inequities that we have in Ontario. And once you, you know, if you can deal with them, and I'm not going to say you can just deal with them, like, but at least you can start to address them. And then, um, you know, once you, you know, boost also your test trace, isolate capacity, blah, blah, blah. We've talked about this a billion times. And then, you know, when you ultimately lift this lockdown, 
you'll be able to keep your R value uh, below one, and you can still have a declining number of cases that'll merge seamlessly with vaccine rollout, bada boom, bada bing, we're out of the pandemic. No, I, I guess, like, just because I, you know, realizing that, um, uh, realizing that, you know, um, we've talked about a lot of this stuff. The, the thing I just got to say to my people a, a bit is, you know, locally in Ottawa, when we've gotten down to like z- literally zero cases in our ICU where people have been compliant, when people have been just hanging on and been like operating their businesses in ways that have been absolutely on side, their gyms, their, their restaurants, whatever, whatever, uh, what have you. And we're going to tell them that that's not enough. And especially when in the area where, you know, we were never overwhelmed. And I know there's going to be a lot of places within Ontario that feel the same way. And we're going into a holiday season. And, and these are times where, you know, mental illness is, is at its worst. Um, pe- people that are uh, with businesses are potentially just hanging on. And so, I, you know, we've all been preaching for a regionalized approach when it comes to these things. I agree with all of what you guys are saying. I just think, you know, it needs to be, where the problem is. We need to focus on where the problem is. Um, so, I, I mean, I'm, I got more to say about this, but I know people are dying also to hear about the vaccines. Um, so we might come back to this depending on if we have some time in terms of the questions. But listen, vaccine, vaccines, we need to, first of all, yes, we got the vaccine in the hizzy, in the country, it is changing the, the future landscape of this disease. And um, maybe we'll just start off with the absolute basics. Um, and I'll, maybe I'll go to Isaac for this one first. A lot of concern, like, for people out there is, like, were, were corners cut to be able to achieve, like, have access to this, to the, to the vaccine this early? Maybe walk us through either the process or reassure the folks out there that there wasn't any um, steps skipped to, to get to where we are. Yeah, that's a great point because some of the concerns people have is that, oh, it's too fast, it's rushed. Bullshit. It wasn't, right? <laughs> First of all, let's think back 17 years. Coronavirus vaccine research started with SARS 17 years ago. So, like, people have been thinking about this for a long, long time. It also continued with MERS, the Middle Eastern Respiratory Syndrome, which is also a pretty deadly coronavirus. And then, of course, we got kicked into high gear when, uh, when COVID-19 came around. The other thing, too, is people are, some people are concerned about mRNA vaccines because they're currently, well, not currently, before this, there weren't any licensed mRNA vaccines on the market. But remember, mRNA vaccine and that technology has been around for well over a decade. Right. People have used this with, you know, looking into cancer therapeutics, looking for creating vaccines for other infections as well, long before COVID-19 was even known to exist. So like these are this is a well-trodden path. And these are platforms that have been used for a long time. Then, you know, unfortunately, sadly for everybody on the planet, COVID-19 rolls around and people said, oh, you know what, let's, you know, dust this off and uh, make a COVID-19 vaccine. And they can and, you know, I thought one of the most inspiring things was you hear about Moderna. So China actually, some Chinese scientists sequenced the virus and released it publicly available, made it very pub- publicly available. 
Moderna basically took a couple of days, like really like a couple of days to figure out how they were going to make their vaccine from that sequenced virus and went to, right to work on, um, on testing it in laboratory settings. Then they did all everything that has, you know, if you're taking a drug or a vaccine to market, there's a process and they followed the process. You do the preclinical work meeting in non-human animal studies that check. Then they, then they started their phase one human clinical trials in March. So they did the phase one clinical trials. That's where you check the, make sure you have the right dose. You can also look for safety as well. Then you have a growing number of people. You do your phase two clinical trials. Usually that involves a few hundred people. Again, you're looking to see, is it safe? You're also looking to see, is the immune system doing what the immune system supposed to do when you get the vaccine? Did that. And then you move into phase three clinical trials, which enrolled, you know, it, for example, the Pfizer vaccine enrolled about 43,000 people. The Moderna vaccine enrolled about 30,000 people. You think, oh, how could they have done that? Well, sadly, there's no shortage of COVID-19. There's a raging pandemic. So it's pretty easy to recruit people. And uh, they did the phase three clinical trials, tens and tens and tens of thousands of people. They, they released their data, interim data, so, and, and then they finished their trials. And, you know, voila, these things look like they're phenomenal. Like, you know, we're talking about 90, 95% efficacy. Like, that's, that's amazing. Like, that's absolutely amazing. So no corners cut. Then you think, well, how does it go from the phase three clinical trial to, you know, my arm? Well, it's got to pass through an appropriate independent regulatory body. In Canada, it's Health Canada. In the United States, it's the FDA. You know, every country's got their own independent regulatory body. They pour over the data, the safety data, the efficacy data, the manufacturing data, and they give it the thumbs up or the thumbs down. And they gave it the thumbs up in Canada, the UK, the United States, Bahrain. And, you know, shortly after, needles started going in arms. That's how it's done. Like, that is the process. The other thing is it doesn't stop there. There's something called post-marketing surveillance. And, you know, for example, if there's any adverse reactions, they're recorded. Um, they look at the safety and the efficacy in real world settings as well. This is also very, very important. And remember, like real world is very different from a clinical trial. You measure the efficacy in a clinical trial, but that's like under ideal con uh, conditions. And then you measure the effectiveness, not the efficacy, effectiveness in real world settings. It's not going to be 95 percent effective, but it'll probably be, even if it's somewhere anywhere close to that in the real world setting, we'll be doing something tremendously good. So, I mean, this is pretty impressive. And, and, you know, people say, well, you know, if it's so good, are you going to get it? The answer, if you look at any healthcare provider, look online, every healthcare provider who's got the vaccine is like posting selfies on Facebook. They're like, yeah, I got it. So yeah, yeah. You know, we trust the science. We believe in science and, and the vast majority of us are going to get it when it's our turn. I can't wait, but I got to wait my turn. Oh my God. Hey, Subhan, was there any initial, uh, when, when you evaluated the, the, uh, the papers uh, and the safety profile, what, what were your thoughts coming out um, uh, when you had access? Yeah, I, I mean, obviously you, you want to look at the data yourself. And I, I had the same impression that Isaac did. I mean, this looks good. They were very transparent about it. You know, I, and I think that's, that's the big thing there. When you, when you look at what's happened in the past year, it's just that if you actually look at the, a lot of what actually causes the delays or the, 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 the duration of time in a normal clinical trial under normal circumstances, a lot of it is not the actual clinical part of it. It's, you know, first of all, getting enough patients, which is very difficult with uh, a lot of other conditions, not with COVID-19. Uh, you know, you have all these resources that are being poured uh, into this effort all at once. 
And you can see what happens when, that, when that's the case. So you're not waiting for funding, you know. Uh, and uh, the other thing is that as phase three is happening, they're kind of already getting their ducks in a row to get the regulatory body to take a look at the data. So the, you know, that type of thing is you're cutting, I don't want to say cutting a corner, you're reducing the amount of latency uh, between steps, but you're not cutting any of the uh, important stuff, which is the clinical aspect. And, you know, they were able to get whatever the number was uh, for five, 150 cases, right? Uh, that's the target they had. That's easy to get when you have millions of cases around the world, right? So I agree with Isaac. When it's my turn, my arm will be ready. Okay. How is your arm? It's, it's, it's hard to fit in this jacket. Yo, you got a, you get a home gym going on in there? You know what I'm saying? So well. arms are like, I could tear this jacket. So I know, I know. It's them shoulders. <laughs> it's them shoulders. Um, any, uh, was there any uh, concerns in general? Like, put, let's put it this way. Was there patient groups where you think to yourself, hey, these guys, we, we don't know enough yet, or I would probably avoid it in certain um, uh, select patient populations. Any of that came up uh, in terms of when you evaluated the data? As one, yeah, you, you, know, you do this stuff better. Well, okay. So, you know, obviously they didn't really enroll. They, they, didn't, they didn't enroll pregnant women or breastfeeding women in the trials. And that's a huge issue that predates COVID-19 because, you know, you know, now what do we do? They also didn't enroll people with compromised immune systems in the trials. They did enroll those who had HIV, who had well-controlled HIV. Good for them for doing that. But, you know, it's interesting now. So, so you know, in the immortal words of your favorite 90s hip-hop artist, Ludacris, you know, what you going to do? What you going to do? <laughs> <laughs> do, you, do you give it to pregnant women? Yeah. Well, you know, it's funny because you look at uh, – you look at, uh, you like that one, eh? Nice. I didn't see it coming. I didn't yeah. see it coming. Ludicrous. And <laughs> so you look at, you know, what the UK says, what Canada says, what the US says. Just look at pregnant and, and, and breastfeeding women. UK, nope, we're not going to do it. Canada, the wording says you shouldn't give them the vaccine, but underneath it says, well, you might be able to give them if you have a conversation about the pros and cons. And the U.S. actually, I like the U.S. wording. It's, it's much softer. It's basically saying, yeah, there, there, there's increased risk of complications in pregnant women. And, yeah, pregnant women weren't included in these studies. But, you know, you can, you, you can give it to pregnant women if you have a conversation about the pros and cons and help with informed decision-making. Yeah, sure. Decision. And I think that just, like, empowers people to make decisions over their own bodies based on mm-hmm. meaningful conversations and, and meaningful counseling. I really like the U.S. approach. Canada's approach is, like, come see, come sa. The U.S. approach, I think, is a little bit better, but Canada would, still looks like it will allow it. Um, but yeah, those are those are patient groups that are noticeably absent from the trials. And then you think about like immunocompromised groups. It's an mRNA vaccine. This is not a live attenuated vaccine. Yeah. It's an mRNA vaccine. So true, we don't have the data, but also like, I don't know. I don't see how this would really have any ill effects. It might not have the same efficacy or effectiveness in an immunocompromised population, but it probably will have some. And I can't really see the potential for side effects or drawbacks. So like, I think with counseling about what we know and what we don't know, I I really hope that it is opened up to people who are immunocompromised for whatever reason, to pregnant women, to women who are breastfeeding, of course, with informed consent and with an understanding of what we know and what we don't know and an understanding that that's going to change with time. I really hope we provide it to those groups. Okay. Excellent. Um, 
for either of you, there was a lot of hype around the patients with severe allergies, like to the point of requiring an EpiPen. Um, any thoughts around that? Any like it could be Suman if you wanted, or Isaac. Suman knows everything about this. <laughs> yeah, I, I saw this. I, I think that uh, the the best thing to say, I think that it's probably going to be a low risk, but it's something you want to keep an eye on, like to make any kind of. Um, definitive statements. Okay, it's it's no problem at all. I think that would be stupid. But also to completely change what you're doing, uh, it, it would not be the right thing either. The other thing is we have to remember that every single adverse effect right now, especially in the first couple of weeks, is going to have a massive micro, uh, microscope on it. People are going to be paying attention. But I think in the grand scheme of things, these things are rare. But that said, um, you know, uh, there, there have been these allergies that have happened all around the, the continent. That one that happened in Alaska to that woman that was on camera. And these types of things, unfortunately, play in people's minds, right? But I think for the most part, there hasn't been an obvious connection between something found yet. I think this was an idiosyncratic reaction. Uh, and the other thing that's really important to note is that these have been called allergic reactions, and some of them might have been, but not every person that faints on TV has, is having an allergic reaction. It could be something else. So it's really important to vet these situations, figure out what it actually is that happened, and then uh, you know systematically think, uh, systematically uh, respond that way, as opposed to doing anything early on, but I think overall it's safe. And the majority of people that have gotten it so far have been just fine. Yeah. No, it's a good, it's a good point. Um, the other thing that's been coming up frequently in the last 48 hours is this new UK strain that uh, people seem to be concerned that the vaccine might be ineffective in terms of, um, you know, treating this new strain. Um, any thoughts towards that? Maybe Isaac, if not Suman, whoever, any takers? It's interesting. Um, the, you know, well, let's, let's look at what we know. Well, we know what the genomics look like and that there's some changes to a part of the virus called the spike protein. Okay. We also know that that's the part of the virus that the vaccines really target. The big unanswered questions are, is this truly a more transmissible strain? Does this strain or variant, I'll call it a variant, does this variant cause more severe illness? And will the vaccine work on this variant? And the answers are, you know, is it more transmissible? It might be. You've heard these, you know, you see some publications say it might be up to 70% more transmissible. At the end of the day, we actually don't really know. It could be, but need more information. Mm -hmm. Does this cause more severe illness? Again, could be, but unlikely. It probably doesn't, but that's based on, you know, very limited data and based on the word of people who are working in that area. Will the vaccine work on this strain? I've spoken with a few virology friends and colleagues and everyone seems to think that the vaccine should, keyword should probably work just the same. But again, also an unknown. It's still an unknown. So basically, there's more questions than answers. And it's hard to be overconfident and have you know, definitive statements about this because like, these are unanswered questions, but at least they're answerable questions. And for example, you, there's um, scientists at the Walter Reed Institute in the United States looking at vaccine efficacy with this strain. There's scientists in, in the UK looking at this very carefully. But while we're in this period of uncertainty, 
Um, you're starting to see some countries, for example, in mainland Europe, uh, halt travel. Canada actually just halted travel for at least a 72 hour period of time while we figure out what we're going to do. Like, I, I think that's very reasonable to have an abundance of caution, abundance of caution during this time, just to make sure that we have all the information and we know what to do with it. I think the other important thing to remember is Canada is very different than Europe, right? Like we have a mandatory 14 day quarantine. So for starters, travel is like minimal. It's not zero, but it's minimal uh, right now uh, because of the significant restrictions that we have in, in Canada. So the volume of travelers is like, it's not nothing, but it's minuscule. And the second thing is all the travelers have to quarantine for a period of 14 days when they come to the country. Is it perfect? No, but it's also pretty darn good. So if, that's very different from, you know, Europe where there most of these places don't have a quarantine period. So I think with that 72 hour window where we figure out how we're going to bolster our uh, approach to this, uh, plus the 14 day mandatory quarantine, which I think will probably get a little bit more robust for people coming in from the UK. I think that's a very reasonable approach. Let's just see what the feds do moving forward with this. And, and like, again, I'm not a betting person. I'm not a betting person at all, but like, here's, I'm going out on a limb here. Here's the crystal ball. And again, like I could be wrong, but, this is just based on the limited data that we have to date. Will this be a more contagious strain? I'm going with yes, but not nearly 70% more contagious, however they quantify that. That's just a guess. Will this cause more severe illness? I'm going with a no. Again, could be wrong, but I'm gonna go with a no on that based on the limited data we have. Will the vaccine work just as well in this strain as it does with other strains? I'm gonna guess that it will. That's purely a guess. And like, like I said, I could be way off on this. This is just purely a guess based on the limited information that we have now and, and some conversations I've had with people who know far more about genomics than I do. Yeah, and I don't want to talk out of my backside either here, but I've been consistently told by epidemiologists and virologists, ID docs, that when this thing does mutate, it might be more contagious, but it's likely to be less virulent, less deadly than uh, previous strains. So um, well, how that plays out in terms of vac the vaccine effectiveness, we'll see. But, um, you know, I think uh, at least we can have some peace of mind in that regard. Yeah. The vaccine's the thing that matters the most to me, quite yeah. frankly. Like, if I can, can I add yeah. something actually, Isaac? You, Dude, I was gonna, the one thing I was going to say here too is that we have to remember that in most situations, viruses are mutating. Uh, let's take influenza, right? Influenza kind of does subtly change from season to season, genetic drift. And you know, with that, you do have to adjust the vaccine a little bit, but very rarely is it going to have enough of a big jump that you have to completely change things. It does happen. Um, you know, once every, what is it, 30 years. But the point that I'm trying to, that I'm trying to make is that even if this is a significant variant that's going to cause, um, you know, more contagion, I still think the, uh, the vaccine is going to take us out of the pandemic eventually. And more likely, this will be something like a seasonal thing. So we'll have coronavirus coming. We might have to adjust the vaccine uh, you know, that's a lot of people, it's not me saying this, a lot of people are saying that we're probably going to have to get vaccinated every couple of years, similar to influenza, not the same. Uh, that, that's my prediction. Fine. Yeah, like, exactly. Oh no. As, as long as we're not in this, <laughs> yeah. I want to give you guys a hug. Okay. Yeah. The, the next time we're together, I want to give all of you guys I wanna, a hug. Maybe a little bit more than a hug, buddy. <laughs> with the, with then, uh, them pipes and them hey. shoulders. Oh yeah. I'm just saying <laughs> it is it is kind of funny that we've actually never met physically. Yeah. What's up with that? 
It's weird. Well, you live in Ottawa, right? Yeah. So, uh, there you go. So yeah, there's that. Go. Oh. <laughs> oh, I'm in Ottawa. They have a little man virtual. Okay, I'll have mine in proper. Look at you all, Ottawa. You <laughs> want uh, slumming it in Mississauga, and I'm slumming it in Toronto. Yeah. Here you are in fancy pants Ottawa. Oh, yeah. sorry. What do they call it? Kanata. <laughs> <laughs> it's funny I still the region I've been here 15 years there's still some places where they talk about like Pembroke or something I'm like I have no idea what that means I don't know what's the snooty part of Ottawa like you know in uh, you know Hamilton if you don't want to say you're from Hamilton you say you're from uh... Ancaster is that oh he froze he froze he froze froze. Um, he's ripping hard too too much into Ottawa there It it was the Ottawa gods, the Kanata gods. Um, so while, while we wait for Isaac to come back from the dead, the one thing that we should uh, touch on too is the rollout of the vaccine. You've seen a lot of countries with different approaches. And, you know, I think, um, I think it's important to think about how we're going to do this, like how we're going to roll out who's going to get the vaccines first. Like we already know locally who's getting it first now. Um, but Suman, are there, um, like, what are your personal thoughts on where the, um, where the uh, role, like who should be getting the vaccine first? Uh, before I answer this, we're in the presence of somebody who's on an Ontario's task force. So <laughs> let me talk first, of- Isaac, and then you can rip up my answer. Uh, but, <laughs> Oh, I'll, I'll, tell us, Suman. I'd love <laughs> to hear your thoughts. Tell us. Uh, no, I, I your that, majesty. <laughs> uh, please let me go. Please let me speak here, okay, Isaac? I, I know a lot about this. Just kidding. Isaac knows. But I, I think that the general approach um, is, you know, you, you talk about these key populations, as they call it, the NACI calls it uh, in Canada, and is basically the people that are at the highest risk for severe disease and those who are at the highest risk of getting the disease to those um, at-risk people. And that's kind of what um, the uh, initial rollout has been. And you've seen it be a little bit different. So here we're doing it, we're giving it to the actual LTC workers, whereas in Quebec, they're actually giving it to the LTC residents. Um, as the great Isaac Bogat says, as long as the, vi- the, the vaccine is going out to somebody that's um, in one of these populations, that's all we care about. We didn't even think this friggin' vaccine would be here until the end of the year. Well, Isaac knew more, but uh, the point is that we have it now. And I think that there is more than one way to skin a cat as it were. So I think that the point is that you want to do it. And I think another thing that uh, Isaac was saying, which I thought was very insightful is that right now we're in the first stage. We barely know. uh, We just got this vaccine. It's complicated logistics. We're working with this and I'm sure there's going to be more granularity down the road when we start to get to other populations. Right now it's kind of this broad swath of things, but it's going to be more well-defined once we see how the, the initial rollout goes and, and you know, how much vaccine we have. So I think that it's being done in, in a way that I think is quite organized and it makes sense to me. Isaac, take it from here. Yeah. I think the real question here. Does that answer perfect by the way? Like just like, like, like this should I be in your ball? place? Here's the ball and here's you just knocking out of the park. (laughs) The real question is how have we practiced for the length of time we practiced? I don't know, close to a decade on national television. Like I say the word nasty about 50,000 times a day, even before COVID-19. And then someone says, what does nasty stand for? And I'm like, uh, national something 
committee. <laughs> Anyways, it's the National Advisory Committee on Immunizations. But like, I forget what, I was on an interview and it was live. And I couldn't remember what it stood for. I felt like such a yes. Anyways, I'm with Suman, right? Like, Nasty did a great job. Really. Try, try again. You're happy oh, with Nasty? So sorry about this. No, it's all good. You, know what, you, could try, you could try just cutting out your video for a second. Well, I'll, I'll, I'll uh, maybe just comment too. How about now? Am I good? Am I yeah, good? now Are you're good? good. You're good. You're good. Okay, I know my wife isn't streaming videos because, like, I can hear logs being sawed like three feet that way so maybe that's a little too much information but i don't know how many people are watching this snoring like a champ 9 42 p.m amazing amazing oh, my night. and the divorce anyway. happens at 9 58 p.m eastern standard time okay nasty did a good job uh prioritized the hot you know Indigenous communities, those who work and live in long-term care, frontline healthcare workers, and those over the age of 70. Smart, smart. The provinces are in, like, no one really veered too far from the NACI guidance. They did a great job. Um, the key thing now is getting access to vaccines. So we've got Pfizer. Problem with Pfizer, it's a bit of a pain in the butt to work with because it's, it's, it's really finicky. You can't really move it around all that well. Um, you know, minus 80, blah, blah, blah. We've heard this a million times. But I think things will get a lot better in the coming days, maybe this week, when Moderna's approved by Health Canada. It's supposed to arrive about 48 hours after it's approved by Health Canada. That's a bit more sturdy, a bit more robust, only needs a minus 20 freezer. That's, that's the one you're going to take into long-term care facilities and to bring to rural and remote and underserviced places. You know, sorry, sorry, Quadcast Nation, my boy Isaac's. Uh, internet. He, he, I guess it's where. Where's he at? Where 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 does Isaac live? Is he in Mississauga or is he in? Uh, he's he's in in uh, North Toronto. Can you hear Toronto. me? Yeah. Turn your video off, actually, guys. See if that, it helps. Yeah, maybe. Yeah, Isaac, throw your video down for a bit until uh, maybe we get some tight flow. But um, I I mean I got I gotta say i was really impressed by a lot of the approaches the uk was the first one that i i got to uh that we first got uh, exposure to and it just is very clear and it made so much sense in terms of yes uh long-term care yes frontline staff and older patients with comorbidities too like they added that piece which i really thought was uh brilliant and even the um I was actually waffling on how important, like, I don't want people to take this with a grain of salt, but the frontline staff, like when I look at the critical care docs or critical care staff, we've been actually really good at protecting ourselves. Like we haven't been associated with outbreaks that I'm not, that I'm aware of, like throughout yeah. uh, the province and so forth. So, you know, when I first heard, like, for example, Alberta was giving it to their ICU docs, my first inclination was like really like you know we're, we're pretty well protected with in our approach but then as i think uh suma mentioned it's like the manpower issue like they're getting drop kicked in the chest and in the eyeball and you down a, a couple icu docs or a couple rns like that's that's everything so that's where i thought it made a lot of sense for the frontline staff and and also i mean you know, it's not zero risk. Like those that are working on COVID units, those are working in ICU, those are working in eMERGE. So um, 
Yeah, I think what's going to be hard is who's next, right? Like, it, yeah. you know, it's kind of low-hanging fruit for the yeah. first group, but who's next? And, like, I, you got to think about, you know, paramedics, yeah. teachers, essential workers in, like, grocery stores and food processing plants, right? Like, re, like there's a lot of people who are at greater risk than the general community. Yeah. And I think it's important to really think about, think broadly. Then, then you think even beyond healthcare work, there's people who work in like homeless shelters or refugee shelters that are not considered healthcare workers, but they work there, you know? And like that, that's, that's an at-risk job, you know? So yeah. I think we've got to be very open-minded thinking about these. And yeah. listen, I'll tell you that it's for me, being someone that has to sometimes increase the dose of ceftriaxone from one gram to two grams, like they really need to put me right at the top because they, nobody can really do that. Uh, so it's important that, you know, we're right up there. Okay. Double that, that up. Double that up, man. Double that up, man. Every once in a while, Q12, if you think of that's a CNS infection, exactly. what's up? But, um, you I, I went on, uh, I was on power plate and, uh, I didn't hear much of this, but I, I threw down, I said like one of the areas that we should hit too are like the low socioeconomic, like this yeah. is a area where, it seems to be um, like it's a problem. It's a it's multi generational. They're often essential workers. Like this should be at least part of the discussion in terms of, hey, you know, when we're down the line, like you know, this could be a way of really min like reducing spread if we hit these areas that are seem to be uh, most hit, like that are hit the hardest. Um, but yeah, it's it's not something that I've seen too much discussion on but i think it's uh it's something to think about um one thing that we kind of missed like, well we touched on a bit was like this side effects like i think it's important to think about like when you get your vaccine you know we don't want there to be hesitancy out there we want to like address things uh you know, ahead of time, I, I, I don't think you're going to be able to shame people into taking this thing. And I, I think you're just going to have to be like, have authentic conversations and knowing what's real. So in terms of when we evaluated the, the data, were there any major side effects like that, that stuck out in terms of, Hey man, you take this vaccine, be prepared for X, Y, Z. Suma. Yes. Or Isaac, I don't know. No, Simon, much. go too for much, it. Too much Chakrabarty. I just yeah. love saying so, that name. Chakrabarty. <laughs> when you look at the vaccine, so uh, actually, I'm, I'm, this is kind of funny. I'm, I'm embarrassed. I forget if it's the um, Moderna or the um, you know, five, but they talked about Bell's palsy. Uh, yeah, oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, which one was that? Uh, was, it, was it one over the other? Yeah. Anyway, the, the, the point being, Bell's palsy was one of the ones that kind of people were like, oh, okay, you know, uh, it looked like, you know, could this be something, right? And I think uh, I've seen a lot of people making definitive statements either way. It's kind of, you know, there's no way it's anything or yeah, it's definitely something. Uh, I think that one thing if I've learned in this pandemic is that you're in a situation where you're learning, you're getting more data as time goes on. You can learn a lot quickly, but you have to kind of stop and think, okay, it's okay to say, I want to see what's going on here before I make any, any conclusions. I think the Bell's palsy thing is something to watch. I think um, post-marketing surveillance will be very important for that. 
Um, but for, you know, in my own risk benefit um, analysis, I would still take the vaccine, uh, you know, looking at the risks of getting COVID and having um, uh, long, long-term effects from that are also something you have to, you have to consider. So, uh, and also, you know, the, the, the AstraZeneca trial, you remember this uh, way back, they had that case of transverse myelitis, which is something that kind of, you know, it, it often will ring bells in your head with vaccine trials because it's it's a known side effect of certain vaccines, right? So, but, you know, uh, the, the one interesting fact that uh, I've learned since kind of looking at these trials more closely is that oftentimes the most serious side effects, the majority of them happen within the first two to three months of the, the trial, if they're going to happen. But of course, sometimes an occasional rare thing comes in the post-marketing surveillance, like you saw, for example, with uh, the dengue vaccine in, uh, in uh, Southeast Asia. So the, the only thing that I'm saying here is that it could be something it's something to look out for. It's important for us to kind of systematically um, uh, assess this. But in terms of my own uh, decision to get the vaccine, it at the current time is unchanged. Can I add one thing? Yeah. If I don't freeze because I have like some <laughs> brutal internet connection for some reason, I have no idea what's happening. Um, you can still hear me. Am I good? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're going okay. I think we need to do a good job in informing people that there are side effects and they can expect you know, some people are going to have a fever. Some people are going to have body aches and pains and muscle aches and pains. Some people are going to feel a little crummy, you know, the day after the vaccine. And, you know, it's, 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 some people have a headache, for example, that's one of the more common side effects. Like it's more common. It looks like these are more common than something like the influenza vaccine. And this is a two dose series. You might have it a little bit after the first dose. It seems to be even a little bit more common after the second dose. All this is, is your body mounting an immune response and you basically feeling that immune response that your body is mounting. But you'll, a lot of people feel something. And I think you just have to be open and honest and transparent yes. about this. People have to know what's going to happen to them. They have very reasonable questions. We have to address these questions. Uh, otherwise, you know, if, if people don't know, they might get scared. They might think this is abnormal. They might not come back for the second dose. Let's just be honest and transparent about what these are. Like people can expect to feel a little crummy after this for a day, like self-resolving, not a big deal, but you're, you, you might feel something. And like, you know, we have to be very transparent about this. So people are aware of what's going to happen to them. You can't, you can't just say, it's all, oh, it's fine. Nothing's going to happen. Like, no, you, you might actually feel crummy for a day. Um, and it's going to happen again. The second time you get the vaccine, you know, a month, 21 or 28 days later, depending on the product you get, got to tell people. Hundred percent. I, I honestly, if the more I think about this, the more I read about this. Like, you want to avoid the hesitancy. Like, especially, like, be upfront. Be oh, yeah. straight up. Radical um, transparency. Here's yeah. what we know. Here's what we don't know. Here's how we're gonna find out. And here's how we're gonna tell you when we find out. Yeah, and this like, is what just, we suggest. And yeah, absolutely. And just be upfront. Um. Before I forget, do you guys do you guys get anxious about the hesitancy, like out there, the the language out there, of people saying like, "Oh, should I take this?" or, or you know, I, I don't want to take it; it's new. Like, are you worried that this will impede our progress to normal life? You know what? I'll start with. This. I think that uh, one thing that I've learned a lot is 
um, kind of trying to understand where people are coming from. And Isaac alluded to this. And actually, you did two quadrobo talking about shaming. I think that the one thing that there is a there is a tendency to want to say, okay, these people, you're idiots. You know, why, why are you hesitant? The science shows this. That's not the point. The point is that people have reasonable questions. And I think that, you know, Isaac mentioned about the transparency is very important, but I think that's the biggest thing. I think people are nervous and that's quite all right. You're always going to have a, a small proportion of the population you'll never get, get through to. But most of the time with vaccine hesitant people, even if it's not now, it, it's still, they'll eventually uh, take the vaccine down the road. And I think that what we have to remember in public health is that perfect is the enemy of good. You don't need to be perfect. You just need to be good enough. And I think that it will be. Yes, there's going to be vaccine hesitant people. But I think eventually once they see things are pretty safe, the majority of people want to take it. They will. And I do think that we're going to get out of this pandemic. Uh, and vaccine hesitancy is not going to be, it's, it's like a, it's a hurdle, I think, but it's not something that's going to ultimately uh, stop this. And I, I'm, I'm, I'm saying that very confidently, obviously, but uh, I, I really do think that with the, the vaccines, it's, it's our, one of our biggest tools against the, the virus itself. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's comforting to see a lot of the surveys done in Canada where about 70 to 85% of people are going to be accepting of a vaccine. Like, that's really good. That's really good. Um, and, you know, when you talk about hesitancy, it's not a single group of people. It's a very heterogeneous group of people, right? Some people aren't going to get a vaccine. No matter what you say, no matter what you do, they're just not going to get it. And that existed long before COVID-19 and that's going to exist long after COVID-19. Then there's a lot of people who have like legitimate questions, concerns, and, and anxiety. And that's, you know, like who wouldn't? New virus, watch how this has brought the earth to its knees new vaccine, you know, people who are not in medicine or science or might not know the processes would say, well, that seems a little fast. I've been told that a vaccine takes four to 10 years to develop and we've only, this took less than a year. So like there's very real concerns and anxieties that people have. And, and we have to acknowledge that we have to address that. We have to like, you know, approach this with empathy and, by like, I totally agree with the two months says shaming and blaming does nothing. It just further polarizes a situation. Like approach it with empathy, answer the questions, tell we've got to be totally transparent about what we know and what we don't know. Like we talked about earlier, but like, I, I, absolutely. And I do still think with, regardless of the hesitancy, I, I along the lines of Suman, I think people will see once a, you know, colleague friend, they, they got through it no, with, um, unscathed, like maybe they had to, the side effects that we're talking about, fever, chills, what have you, but you know, their, their ears not falling off. Like I think yeah. people are going to, are going to start to have a little <laughs> bit more faith in the process. You know what I'm saying? Did you like, see, did you see the uh, president of Brazil? No. Talk about the vaccine, the, the head of state. And he's like, we don't know what it'll do. Maybe it'll turn you into a crocodile. And you're just like, oh, shit. <laughs> like, oh, my God. Well, there goes like a half of your population who's never going to get it. Like, what the amount of damage that like a yeah. stupid statement like that can do is just profound. And go viral. You know, oh. and, and just go viral. Oh, pun not intended. I dropped this mic. I'm about to drop that mic. Wow, pow. Um, 
yeah, the, uh, <laughs> I don't know what to say. The um, one thing that has come up before I forget crew is there's been a lot of questions I see uh, pulling up here about va- uh, vaccinating kids. So do, do uh, I don't remember if you cover, uh, is it, are you aware that, are they planning on um, examining this in any future trials and um yeah, we'll start with that. Uh, Isaac, any uh, far, as far as you know, are they going to be looking at giving it to kids? Uh, yeah, so uh, what we do know is that um, there are certain um, companies that are actually now doing pediatrics arms, either starting now or going to be doing it uh, very soon. I think that's actually important because children, um, uh, you know, that, that saying goes, I'm not a pediatric um, uh, doctor by any means, but the, the children are not just small adults. They um, have different doses that they need, a different interval. And sometimes like, you know, even kids, like a kid that's two months old compared to a kid that's 11 years is a massive difference. And all these things have to be looked at. So right now, I think that uh, I'm really bad with numbers, but I think that the actual trials contained uh, people as young as 16, but they have kind of given, you know, if you want to give it to somebody between 12 and 15 years of age, that should be okay. Below that, Right now, we don't have uh, good evidence, uh, and it is being uh, uh, initiated and accrued as we speak. Isaac, I think you mentioned Pfizer has the, the one pediatric arm. AstraZeneca is, is putting one through two, I believe. Do, do you know more? Oh, no, I think Moderna is, though, as well. They're going to enroll okay. as young as 12. And there's been calls from pediatric associations to really study this in younger populations. Yeah. It's interesting. If you look at the Canada guidelines, even though 18 and up were enrolled in the clinical trials, they're going to give it to people 16 and up. And then there is a provision that, you know, with informed (laughs) consent and blah, 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 you could give it to 12 to 15. Am I frozen? You were for a second, but that, that came out. That, that statement came out. It came out fresh. I don't know what's going on. I'm really embarrassed about this. Sorry. No, it's, it's all good. Um, the um, but that's good. I I think it would be nice to have some definitive data to support giving it to younger population. As you mentioned, like the, the you know they are not as it's not as simple as being a small adult. Like it's different physiology, especially when you think about dosing. I think that's probably the bigger element of uh, trying to sort that out. Um, I saw in the chat group, they're asking if uh, they're planning on looking at pregnant uh, population. I don't know if that's readily available or if they brought that up. I didn't see anything about that personally. Uh, there's actually is a very interesting thing um, that the Society of uh, Maternal Field Medicine, I believe it was, that came out. And I think that there is an issue with trials. I understand the, um, the uh, perception of risk and not wanting to include uh, pregnant women in trials because obviously there, there's there's the the baby you have to worry about you know if there were uh, any kind of side effect it would you know be be something that was uh, you know catastrophic but I think it is important we uh, that is, is such an important population that we need to know things about we know that in many infections not just COVID nineteen pregnant women are at increased risk especially in the third trimester and I think having some type of data for that would be very helpful I do really much like the fact that the um, US and also uh, NASI here in Canada mentioned okay we don't recommend giving it to pregnant women but if you have a discussion weigh the risks and the benefits you could consider giving it I think that's a smart thing because you know uh, we're it's 2020 and I think the fact that we're 
often excluding pregnant women from trials just because they're pregnant. Sometimes that needs to be looked at a bit closer. Uh, how are we going to get, how are we going to get progress? Um, I'm going to, because I'm cognizant of the time. And so I'm, I'm going to try and find one last question. I want to try and find one that's going to drop kick our minds. Um, and I think this one's a tough, I don't know. I'll just throw it out. Can vaccines possibly flare dormant or recovered autoimmune conditions? Suman loves that question. Love that question. That is so a Suman question. So this has been a, a question that comes up with many vaccines. Uh, and uh, the, the, okay, so I'm by no means a vaccinologist, but the kind of ones that we classically learn about are occasionally you can see vaccines that can uh, worsen brittle MS. Uh, you'll see people that, that it can actually make things worse. There have been reports of people having certain, like, you know, flares of their underlying, um, underlying uh, inflammatory condition, uh, whatever, rheumatoid arthritis, things like that. But as a general rule, it does, it's, it's not this widespread thing that can uh, preclude somebody from taking a vaccine, right? Uh, oftentimes, the very people we want to protect the vaccine you know, it is, you have to kind of think where the risks and the benefits because you want them to get some protection, um, understanding that there might be a risk of some, you know, low grade side effects. And often uh, one of the biggest things I talk to people about, which is very important, is that these symptoms that you feel when you get a vaccine is not the disease, it's that the, you know, myalgia, uh, muscle aches, fevers, all that type of stuff, that is actually your immune system activating. Yeah. And it, it's very important to note that. Uh, and, you know, around the flu vaccine time in our ID clinics, we'll often get people coming in with cellulitis of their arm, right? And what that actually is, is an immune reaction to the vaccine and not, that's why the antibiotics that they've been giving you for the past two weeks aren't working, right? Yeah. One um, of the ones. Okay, last one, because I like that answer. Last one for realsies. Um, oh, where was it? Oh, I'm going to pretend to freeze so I don't have to yeah, answer it's, it's, uh, This one's for Isaac, okay. Uh, if, you got, if you got COVID-19 COVID and lived through it, you survived it, what, do, you take the, do you take the vaccine? Yes. Yeah, you hear a bit of debate about this, but, like, I, I would. Right, we, we know that there have been credible cases of reinfection. We know that those have occurred in as little as four months after the initial infection. And we know that those credible cases of reinfection are probably the tip of an enormous iceberg. So yeah, when, your turn, when it's your turn, if it was me, I would. I certainly would. Um, and you know, you hear things like, well, maybe they should wait for others to get vaccinated. Okay, cool. But in all fairness, like protocolizing that would be very challenging. You're going to have to rely on individuals to do that themselves. Like, what are you going to say? Like, show me proof of PCR that you've had a prior infection so that I delay you X number of months to prioritize someone else. Like, I guess you could, but that'd be a pain in the ass to do that over a huge population. I just say that most people who have recovered from the infection should get the vaccine. You know, that's, that's probably the right thing to do. At this point. Yeah. I would agree with that. Um, gents, as usual, this has been a slice. I've learned a ton. That's not true. I haven't learned that much, but it, I think maybe a lot of people out there have learned a ton. I know there's a ton of questions out there and I know we didn't get up to all of them. 
But I think hopefully this helps settle some of the concerns about the the speed of 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 the of you know Operation Warp Speed bringing the vaccine to the table and um, resting. Hopefully, people's minds are more at rest. People will be more willing. I think this like I can't emphasize how much. Uh, like how amazing this task has been. Like when you sit down and you take a, take a look back at 2020 and knowing where we were in March and where we are now and looking at, we could see the light at the end of the tunnel because of the, you know, the innovation, the progression of, of, of the vaccine. Like we just got to celebrate this bad boy. And um, I think we're having Suman and Isaac on, hopefully uh, adds to this piece. So guys, as always, it's a pleasure Thanks for doing this. For some reason, I feel like we're going to do this again. I hope but, so. This is like the only social interaction I've had since January. So yeah. It's like, wow. Yeah. Absolutely. And uh, yeah. And because of uh, what we we're just chatting about, it's not unreasonable to think that we'll be doing this in person, not in the not too distant future. No. Uh, I'm guessing. Uh, here's a total guess. Mm, May. May? Hey. Yeah. yeah, you know, it's funny because I get that question a lot uh, on the media. Like, when do you think, like, things will, like, start to normalize? And I'm like, yeah, late, 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 no, I say early summer, we're going to start to see that some of the light, especially, you know, more of the, most of the vulnerable populations getting uh, vaccinated, uh, the seasonality component of this. Yeah. Uh, oh, yeah. Like, like, oh, yeah. I, yeah, and then by the time, way more widespread access to the vaccine as the summer progresses. Like I think, yeah, yeah like we're going to see. 2021 is going to start off looking like garbage <laughs> and it's going to end off fantastic. And somewhere along the line, people are going to wake up and say, you know what? Like, Hey, it's getting better. And I yeah. think that wake up somewhere along the line and say, Hey, it's getting better. is probably going to be April, late April or May, I think. That's my guess. I don't know. What, what do I know? I love He's it. been good. He, he predicted December for the vaccines of needles going in arm. I, know, I, I said you that know, back in like May. I know. I heard that and I thought you like, I was like, who is this motherfucker? Like, what is he talking about? You know how crazy that sounds? I, I, Dude, remember, I was so I, happy I say, that came true. <laughs> I, I hate to say it. You, you've been, uh, both of you guys have actually been like dead on on a couple issues actually where it's been like, I remember even texting y'all about like, is this, you guys think this is a a true second wave coming through? And you were like, hell yes. (laughs) Boom. Uh, Bob's your second cousin, Larry. Um, But yeah, thanks again, boys. It really, really means a lot. And, um, you know, I can't wait till we do this again. Thanks for having me. Take care, guys. Take care, guys. Later.